One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, in a moment, we're going to talk about Keir Starmer. As we approach the end of the year, how is he doing? How has he done? Is he doing enough? Uh, on the day that he announces he's abstaining on the big question of England's post-lockdown uh, coronavirus tears, is that showing real leadership? Uh, but first, it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelfitch. That's Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovich. Let's talk about the thing that everyone is talking about. Scott Jeggs. And a substantial meal. And what this tells already this morning... Well, yesterday we had um, George Eustace, the uh, uh, Environment Secretary, saying Scotch eggs were a substantial meal. This morning Michael Gove told LBC they were a starter and not a substantial meal. Uh, But then he went on to tell ITV that Scotch eggs are a substantial meal. Are we uh, making a mountain out of Scotch eggs? Or uh, is there a broader point here that, that when the government starts trying to be too prescriptive with its rulemaking, we end up having silly conversations like this? You, you seem to be laughing the most, David, so I'm going to come to you are, are we making a mountain out of Scotch eggs? <laughs> that, that sentence actually came out of your mouth just now. I know, and lots of people uh, are thinking, well, that's a game. is that a game we can play at Christmas? <laughs> I mean, I loved, I, uh, what I loved about this was the fact that after uh, Eustace said a scotch egg was a meal and then michael gove had said it wasn't and then michael gove said two scotch eggs and a pickle was a substantial meal apparently and then somebody said well what does that look like laid out on a plate <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing and the, uh, a few days ago my wife was saying to me she wanted to meet up with a friend uh before they went out for a meal and they there's a club that they both go to but they couldn't but they've been told they couldn't go there because they were only going to have drinks and they couldn't have drinks on their own. I said, look, they'll find a work away around this. They'll find some way of saying that a relatively small amount of food that you can have with it, you can have with it with the drink. Because everybody will forget what the actual purpose of this was and they will all kind of concentrate on what the actual rule on what the rule is supposed to be. And sure enough, along comes George Eustace and does that exact same thing which will allow people to do the thing that you weren't supposed to be doing before by bending the rules very slightly and then michael gove is forced to go along and say yeah well have two of them (laughs) i remember um uh danny when this whole idea of what was and what a substantial meal came up uh, the first time i think when the you know when some local uh, lockdowns happened um speaking to josh glancy in uh new york I oh, know it was. In fact, it was Will Pavia, who's the Times correspondent in New York. Um, and they went through the whole thing, this whole thing in New York. And what would happen was people would go to the bar and they had to buy a meal. And there would be a, a, a ham roll wrapped in cling film, which you would buy. 
drink your drink and then give the roll back uh, <laughs> so it could then be sold again uh, later right. as a prop, which doesn't, it strikes me as quite a good way of spreading Precisely. coronavirus. There is no non-absurd way of making these rules, and there's no non-arbitrary way. Every single line... You have to draw lines, otherwise you have no restrictions, and if you draw them, it will always be preposterous. (laughs) So there is some sort of feeling, I think, that if only somebody intelligent was in charge who wasn't a buffoon, this would not be so idiotic. That is not the case. It is intrinsically idiotic because we have to make some arbitrary rules in order that we don't all go and do the same things and catch coronavirus off each other. Unless we're going to do nothing at all and have complete lockdown, or do everything and everybody gets coronavirus, we're going to have to draw arbitrary lines. And everyone has to just sort of grow up about this. It's going to be necessary to go, you can have one scotch egg, but you can't have two. Or you can have two, but you can't have three. Uh, or you can have a roll and give it back. That's preposterous, obviously. So they've tried to get round that with a substantial meal. Then what's that? You can't get round it. In the end, you have to make some broad guidelines and trust to a degree of common sense. So people should stop sort of saying, throwing up their arms and saying, I can't believe how idiotic this all is, and realise it's going to be arbitrary. And I suppose that's the um, the serious point behind this uh, in-depth discussion about uh, Scotch eggs, isn't it, David? The, um, yeah. There does seem to be a whole cottage industry of mainly journalists on Twitter going, oh, but does this mean I can't take my grand water skiing in Dundee, but I can in Cornwall? <laughs> I think I think Danny's words practically have biblical force. Because <laughs> uh, he's, obviously, he's obviously quite right about this. And this, not, and this doesn't just extend to the question. I was listening to Tim Loughton MP talking about how he should lot his lot should go into tier one etc and then you get into the business well just across the border here and down the road here and so on and it's all exactly the same whichever wherever you draw the rule it's going to look arbitrary and it's going to have a ridiculous element to it the coronavirus case rate in my house is naught which doesn't mean i should be in a different tier from the rest of the street (laughs) okay you've got to draw the line somewhere and either of you two itching to go to the pub uh, and have a... <laughs> As you can imagine, David said that, that, that Scotch eggs had, uh, were biblical, but not in my bit of the Bible they are. <laughs> um, the, uh, um, no, I'm not a drinker, so it may You're not be, a drinker, uh, you're not a Scotch I, egg eater. So, I mean, this and is... I noticed that uh, neither Scotch nor Scotch egg... The, so I noticed that, um, that uh, Rishi Sunak has got to make some of these judgments, and he's not a drinker either. And And I do think... Of course, that you know, you do have to be careful that you don't, when you're drawing these arbitrary lines, favour those that uh, that favour what you know that open all the Chinese restaurants but close the pubs. So you, know, you do have to make these on the form of some data, but in the end, they are going to yeah. be arbitrary. What do you think? What do you think the Chinese meal equivalent of a Scotch egg is? I suppose it's a kind of you know Manchurian dough ball or something like that, isn't uh, it? Steamed one... char siu bun, I would think. Uh, something something <laughs> like that. I mean, actually, actually, you are specifically not allowed to eat scotch eggs i believe uh, under the terms of the uh, of leviticus danny um, and i think you get stone i think you get stoned to death if you transgress so there's a very good reason for not even going for one oh, it's, a, it's a shame because during the early stages of lockdown we made scotch eggs because there was frankly nothing else better to do and i can tell you the amount of meat we wrapped around them they were more than a substantial uh, substantial oh, meal but that there have honestly been moments in when with people going, uh, you know, I can't believe I'm not allowed to do this, but he's allowed to do that, and this doesn't inconsistent work. I think being stoned to death would actually have been preferable. Uh, it, it is driving me a little bit. It is driving me a little bit crazy. We all have to just accept that 
these are that we're drawing lines in order to try in some statistical way to reduce uh, contact between each other and it's a dis- doing that is not an exact science you're right but it's a displacement activity isn't it in some kind of a way because yeah, it's guess. also kind of difficult and intolerable etc this is something we can begin to get our heads around have a good old moan about how ridiculous it is and uh, and so on that's and true maybe that's true. maybe just it gets us through this a bit i don't know uh, the, the, the whole sort of cottage industry of being um, of you know complaining about things and i ended up getting in a Twitter argument with Alison Pearson last week, which is, you know, even more of a waste of time than arguing about Scott Jeggs. But there is this sort of everyone wants to think that there is a more straightforward, logical, easier solution to all of this. Actually, we don't need to have lockdowns because there's this other thing we could be doing. Or, you know, it's not about if we could just all agree on the Scott Jeggs, then this will all go away. And actually, that's just not the case. Well, it's a lot of the time this happens in politics, actually, in general, which is, you know, when faced with bad things. I mean, in some ways, it's a This is a good thing. People are ingeniously questioning uh, whether there are more creative answers to this, questioning the data and holding the people who promote it to account. And to some extent, sometimes I find these comments frustrating because they're intellectually sort of wide of the mark. But they do serve a purpose, actually, because they do force the government to think, is this restriction necessary? Will people understand it as logical? You know, it does exercise some, for, for all that it, for all that it's the sort of, uh, as it were, it's kind of political arbitrage that you're engaged in, it does have some sort of uh, value in keeping the market in equilibrium. One one thing I don't like about it, uh, particularly though, is it's always accompanied by the imagery of what it is that ministers eat. I mean, it's taken back really to the Cornish pasty row with George Osborne and David Cameron and the kind of non-existent pasties consumed at places that didn't exist on Leeds railway station. And then uh, they will say something like, oh, I really enjoy a good pasty or I enjoy two (laughs) scotch eggs. And I think I really don't want to know this about you. I don't want to imagine it. I don't want to think about it. Uh, I don't want your kind of... Tell me rather that you love a saddle of venison, uh, etc. Because I'm going to believe that more readily. What I wouldn't do to go back to those those halcyon days when literally the biggest story in British politics was that David Cameron said he loved the pasties, uh, and he had had one of the pasties from a pasty shop in Leeds, which turned out it shut down, and that well, was that was the most the most controversial, difficult thing that was happening for the government that day. I can. I can tell you, I sat in George Osborne's office. He told me that he was going to introduce the tax on uh, hot, you know, takeaway goods, and I didn't notice that particular political row coming. I have to admit it. Well, yeah. uh, thank you, Daddy, for owning up to your 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 uh, political complicity. In, in, yeah, exactly. Uh, let's. Um, you 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 don't have personal experience of uh, of Scotch eggs, Daddy. So let's concentrate on something you do know more about: Topshop uh, and the future. <laughs> <laughs> And the future of the high street. We've obviously heard this morning that uh, uh, Debenhams um, are going to start winding down, uh, set to close, putting 12,000 jobs at risk after rescue talks failed. Uh, We've also heard that Arcadia uh, is going into administration and that threatens, it's not just Topshop, but it's all Mm. of Philip Green's empire. Um, Is is retail dead, Danny? Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, the, I'm not a sort of expert on it because it also, uh, on that because then it often takes years after something, uh, you know, is kind of apparently obsolete for it to run down and look at what happened to vinyl records, for example, or modems in computers, which everyone was saying thirty years ago were completely obsolete. Um, you, you know, the the answer is there's going to be less retail, um, and I, I do always remember being in New York and trying to buy presents for my children on a trip, and. Uh, 
for the first time, instead of getting it sent, I had to go to the I had to go to the goods, right? And I had to go and try and find shoes that were in my middle son's size uh, and in the right colour, and they never had the right thing in stock. And I thought to myself, it's so much easier just to go on the internet, which I couldn't do because I was away, but I to go on the internet and have it sent. And, um, you know, at that moment, I realised everyone's going to obviously go down this route over the next 10 to 15 years, and that is what's happening. It won't eliminate it entirely, but... You can't stop it. Otherwise, I was so. Otherwise, we'd have a blacksmith on every high street, and people would be furious that they were getting ticketed for parking their parking their horse outside. You, you you just you just have to accept that you know exchange changes. We're two things during this lockdown: retail, and the other thing is coins and money. Uh, you know, we're all beginning to use contactless. I don't know when the last time was you used a coin, but it was a yeah, long no, we, time for in me. Fact, we, we talked about this on the show last week, and I, I mean, I I've had a a single £20 note in my wallet for about nine months uh, because I've had no uh, calls to... Because I don't want to break it because then I'll have a pocket full of change and that's it. That'd be even more annoying. But um, mm. what about you, What about you, David? Are you, are you, well, are you I mean, mourning the loss of Topshop? As I said, in, in the case of coin, it's a bit of a problem because as Danny knows, we're always accusing you too, Matt, of taking the Murdoch shilling. <laughs> uh, and so on. And now, of course, the Murdoch shilling doesn't exist as no. a kind of... I always kind of used to imagine a kind of shilling with a picture of Rupert Murdoch. We're now it, taking the Murdoch we contactless beep beep, which and, is much less uh, catchy. Well, well, it is. At the same time, incidentally, everybody, so you should know this, is we're, like, we're being thrown off our desks because they're all... Uh, they're bringing the Sunday <laughs> Times up to the Times now because they can say space because we're not there etc so I, and I just say that because that gives you an example of how things are changing our colleague Hugo Rifkin's got a column in this morning's times which makes the point that you've got the acceleration of certain sorts of changes which were already uh, underway um, and I I don't like shopping particularly I don't like clothes shopping and the new dispensations allow me and millions of other people to do this the way that we want to do now of course the, the negative fact of that is it has a huge impact on other people's jobs so i'm effectively my choices are depriving other people of jobs that they have had up until now um, and footfall a certain degree of footfall from the kinds of areas where other businesses would be i don't see an alternative to this particularly because i don't want to mm. go back to that form of shopping i have no intention really of doing it i want to do other things with my time and the new entrepreneurs uh, and the innovators will be the people who monetize the other things I now want to do with my money and time that I used to spend on shopping. Well, that was Finkovich, Daniel Finkelstein, David Ivanovich. Obviously, you can read them both in The Times. You can subscribe to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, is Keir Starmer doing enough? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now we turn our attention to Keir Starmer and his big decision to make no decision and abstain on those coronavirus restrictions. To govern is to decide. And today, Keir Starmer has decided not to decide. In the big vote on England's coronavirus tier restrictions, Labour is neither for nor against. Instead, he's telling his MPs to abstain. Smart politics or poor leadership? And what does this tell us about the Labour leader after eight months into the job? The Labour Party is under new management. So how is the Labour Party doing? Is business booming under the new management or is it time to call in the administrators? Taking over in a pandemic, making the acceptance speech via Zoom, uh, let's be honest, may not have been the best start. But then the government isn't having the best of times either. So we're going to take a look at Keir Starmer's polling and how it compares to other leaders of the opposition. Then we'll speak to three of the best Labour watchers in uh, London town. John Rental from The Independent, Miata Fambula, who's a former advisor to Ed Miliband, and our very own Patrick Maguire from uh, The Times Red Box, who also co-wrote the book, uh, the ins- Left Out, The Inside Story of Labour under Jeremy Corbyn. But first, let's dig into the opinion polls uh, with Ben Page from Ipsos Mori. Hi, Ben. Good morning. And the beauty of Ipsos Mori is it's been going, a lo- going, uh, it's been going for so long uh, that you've got polling that stretches right back to the 1970s. So, um, Absolutely. Rootling around in the history books, eight months into the job, you know, that's, that's a reasonable length of time, arguably, yeah. as we come, approach the end of the year. How is Keir Starmer doing compared to other leaders of the opposition from the last uh, yeah. 40 years or so? Well, I'm looking at the the chart, which I sadly you can't see because it's radio, but uh, I'm looking at the chart showing all of the leaders of the opposition, including people like David Cameron before he became prime minister and Tony Blair going back to, to the 1970s. And the bottom line is the only ones who get to be prime minister are the ones who stay above the line of net zero. In other words, they have more people who are favourable to them than unfavourable. Tony Blair managed that throughout his time as leader of the opposition and then, of course, won a huge victory in 1997. Cameron started badly uh, and then made up ground and eventually struggled above the stayed above the line long enough to become prime minister. Starmer is doing at the moment actually not not far away from where Tony Blair was in the uh, early to mid 1990s. So he's not storming ahead in the polls. Labour isn't in any sort of lead uh, in the opinion polls. But in terms of his ratings compared to other opposition leaders, Starmer hasn't made a bad start. He is, however, heading south, but most politicians tend to. <laughs> yeah, I suppose we should we should caveat it by saying that the, the particular circumstances back in the the early 90s, uh, and, and the, the Tony Blair taking over from John Smith in that, those tragic circumstances, his sort of, his, Tony Blair's poll ratings at that point are an anomaly that we should poll, you know, they're an outlier essentially. That's true. They? I mean, he, yes, he stayed further, you know, he did, he was just astonishing, quite frankly. Uh, I mean, his, in, in all sorts of ways, Tony Blair broke all sorts of records and it may have been circumstances. Some of it may have been the man. But yes, he is. He is out. He is outstanding. So on that basis, if you put Blair out of it, Starmer hasn't made at all a bad start. He's doing much better than David Cameron did at this point in his tenure and obviously far better than um, Mr. Kinnock. 
much better than Mr. Foot, much better than Mr. Corbyn, of course, who was pretty much disastrous all the way through, and better than many of the Tory opposition leaders. So, no, his ratings aren't bad, but he isn't he, he's not sort of electrifying, shall we say. I suppose at this stage, given how badly Labour did last year, given how toxic uh, Jeremy Corbyn had become with many voters, um, to some extent, just sort of uh, wiping the slate clean, if you like, was all he needed. Being normal, yes. All he needs to do with it. Let's just take a listen to something he said during his uh, party conference speech when he basically, yeah, in terms of the task he was setting himself, he was setting the bar pretty low. We're not going to win back those we've lost with a single speech or a clever policy offer. Trust takes time. So to those people in Doncaster and Deeside, in Glasgow and Grimsby, in Stoke and in Stevenage, to those who have turned away from Labour, I say this. We hear you. Never again will Labour take you or the things you care about for granted. And I ask you, Take another look at Labour. And that's the sort of that test of just take another look. Give us another hearing. It's the the first sort of bar he has to clear, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And actually, one thing that he has done is he's managed to reduce more than half the proportion of people who see Labour as extreme. So back in uh, the back end of last year, nearly half the population regarded Labour under its previous management as extreme. Uh, The same, quite similarly, to the early 1980s. But to get elected, you don't want to be seen as extreme. And he's now got that down to 20% and actually below the Conservative Party. So, you know, he is is gradually sort of reinstating Labour. His huge challenge, which we haven't even got to yet, though, is the mountain he has to climb to win a general election given the 80-seat Tory lead, and particularly his challenge in Scotland, which for Labour's big victories was absolutely essential to the size of those majorities. And Labour is nowhere in Scotland at the moment, and he isn't making up making any progress really there at all. I was really struck by that extreme uh, uh, polling, which, like you said, goes all the way back to the, to the early 80s. And, and actually, with the exception of... Uh, uh, 2010, which was very, very close. The Tories were seen as very marginally more extreme than Labour, and obviously they did end up not getting the uh, the majority. But actually, it's always the, the party seen as least extreme, which ends up um, winning general elections. And I suppose that's a real sort of gut thing, isn't it? And these things are all relative. And uh, back in December, last December, the Tories were, uh, were also seen as pretty extreme, historically high, but just not as extreme as, as Labour. And in the end, the voters tend to go for... Uh, the the least extreme, albeit of, of possibly two extremes. Absolutely, as you say, Matt. It's always in politics compared to what, <laughs> uh, rather than rather than your own necessarily or your own quality. So the context is all. So in you know in that sense, he's he's uh, he hasn't set out a a manifesto for government particularly yet. But I think he would regard that as you know wait until COVID's over and you know this is a this is a slow process. He's got he's got a few years. The other challenge I think he has, and it's, it'll be interesting to hear a colleague uh, speaking later who worked with Ed Miliband, of course, many things that were in the Labour manifesto in 2015 and proposed by Ed Miliband have now been adopted by the Conservatives anyway, which is another sort of feature of our politics. Uh, is there anyone, because I've written about this at Times Red Box this morning, that you know, that even uh, Annalisa Dodds, the shadow chancellor, is not exactly a household name beyond her own household. When you're doing your polling, <laughs> is, there, uh, is there anyone else in his team who's getting any cut through? Not, not massively, to be quite honest. And I think that is a, that is a weakness. Um, 
you know, where is the, the strategy of not having very strong commons performance like Hilary Armstrong, sorry, uh, Hilary Benn um, or uh, Yvette Cooper. Some of these people have a lot of experience and potentially more cut through um, not being there. And what's what's the strategy behind that? I think, he, you know, at some point we, we people will want to believe that he has a good team of leaders. And on that one, again, you know, he's under Blair uh, between 97 and for, for most of Blair's tenure as prime minister, he was miles ahead of the Conservative Party uh, on that. And at the moment, Labour is sort of, well, it's two bald men arguing over a comb on some of that. But no, I think you're absolutely right. That That is a real challenge. And of course, Rishi Sunak, we, we've, you've mentioned, you know, compare him to Annalise Dodd. Everybody's heard of Rishi Sunak. He's the most popular UK politician going, miles ahead of Boris Johnson. Um, and only beaten by Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. Uh, but yes, I think Labour, Labour's, how, how he builds this picture of a strong, competent team is going to be part of the, you know, what he needs to do in the next few years. Yeah, it's interesting the point you make about Rishi Sunak because when we've run uh, our monthly focus group with uh, James Johnson, uh, yeah. where we and we've done a few with with swing voters and that sort of thing, Rishi Sunak absolutely comes up every time. Everyone likes him, and you know he's doing a good job, and they see you know they, he seems to appeal to them. And it's interesting that both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer start in the job almost at the same time. I think Keir Starmer, uh, Rishi Sunak was in the job for maybe a few more weeks, but he's managed to introduce himself, obviously by splashing a lot of money around. Uh, let's just take a look, listen to some of what uh, our focus groups in July and August have had to say about Keir Starmer. I, I'm very glad that he's there instead of uh, Jeremy Corbyn. But I don't know what he stands for. I don't really know. I didn't know what he stood for before during the whole Brexit thing, and I don't know what he stands for now. Um, I have no opinion of Keir, what's his face. Um, um, I'll be honest, James, I don't really know too much about Keir, apart from he sounds like a Bond villain. But he has got a Bond villain-sounding name, so I, I can't really cast too much opinion on him, to be honest, mate. Like I said, I'm indifferent, but I'm, do you know what? Boris looks shattered, so I'd probably vote Keir just to see if, he, if he's got any energy. <laughs> So, so we had Keir What's-His-Face. He sounds like a Bond villain and he doesn't look as tired as the other bloke. Uh, uh, ben Page from Ipsos, Molly. Uh, just finally, does it, does it matter? Because you don't get a second chance to make a first impression and all of that. Does it matter that he's a bit below the radar now? Well, not, not necessarily because he hasn't, what he hasn't got, which is what um, Johnson has, is a lot of people who've made up their mind but decided they really don't like him. So he's still got more people who are positive than negative about him. And that, that seems to be what you ultimately need to be prime minister once you've got everybody hating you uh then you you know even if your own even if your own voters are, are particularly keen but if you're generally disliked it, it is really much harder so actually no he's still he is still looking at the historic sweep he is still in the you know in the sort of territory where he could become prime minister all other things being equal Really, really fascinating this. Ben Page there from Ipsos uh, Moy. Up next, we will speak to our panel and find out what advice they would give Keir Starmer to make more of an impact. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. What should Keir Starmer do to make more of an impression? Well, let's speak to uh, three of our favourite Labour watchers. John Rental is the chief political commentator at The Independent, biographer of Tony Blair. Morning, John. Hello there. Uh, nice to have you with us. Miata Fambula is now the chief executive of the New Economics Foundation think tank, was, was an advisor to Ed Miliband. Hi, Miata. Hi. And uh, Patrick Maguire, our very own from t- the Times Red Box, who also co-wrote the book Left Out, The Inside Story of Labour Under Corbyn. Hi, Patrick. Morning. So um, let's talk about this uh, question, first of all, of abstaining. John, is this a 
Is this smart politics or a cop-out by Keir Starmer in, in deciding that Labour won't vote either way on England's new tier restrictions? Uh, it's, it's a cop-out. It's not very good. Um, it undermines uh, Keir Starmer's one positive appeal, which is competence. Um, I mean, he may be dull. He may be... What did, what did, ben Page called him not electrifying. You, you've used the phrase underwhelmment in your article. <laughs> but... Uh, I don't think that necessarily matters if people think that he is competent and knows what he's doing. But someone who knows what they're doing doesn't uh, doesn't abstain. So I think it does it does slightly weaken him. I mean, he's obviously done it for uh, party management reasons. I think there are a lot of Labour MPs in the North who want to vote against. Uh, so abstention just keeps everybody happy. And to be honest, it it will be forgotten by by the middle of tomorrow. Actually. Um, but it it doesn't help. Uh, but otherwise, he's doing extremely well. Uh, Miata, your old boss, Ed Miliband, uh, got into trouble uh, after he uh, ordered his MPs to abstain on uh, some welfare uh, uh, reforms that the, the coalition would try to force through. And that was... That was seen as, as a bit of a fudge and a bit of a, um, you know, people can't remember the details, but it, does, it doesn't strike you as a, le- as a decisive leader who's, who knows what's right for the country. Yeah, and I remember that moment uh, well. Uh, you know, I think in this instant, it's not wholly fair because yeah, I think the dilemma that's facing the Labour Party and the Labour leadership is, you know, they believe that restrictions need to be retained for public health grounds. They're not fully convinced by the approach the government's taking. And critically for them, the restrictions should be uh, conditional on additional financial support. Um, And that's the thing that they would want to have to be able to vote fully uh, for uh, the restrictions that are being put before Parliament. They haven't got that. So they're trying to find a way of expressing their concern and displeasure but without doing the job of voting down the restrictions, because the way that it's being presented to Parliament is that you're either voting for restrictions or all restrictions would essentially stop applying. And that would be a disaster on public health grounds. So they're in a really difficult uh, place. And it's quite hard to use, if you like, parliamentary tactics to basically say to the public, we think restrictions should continue, but we don't think the government's got this completely right. And that's what they're trying to do through an abstention. But I agree, the optics of it doesn't look great. And what's it like when you're in the the leader of the opposition's office and you're having these discussions? Do people pipe up and say, we're just going to look ridiculous if we do this, but it's the least worst option? It's always difficult. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And you can definitely uh, uh, play out exactly what different parts of the media and indeed different parts of the public are going to say. And, you know, they would have been aware of the risk, you know, abstaining on an issue that is really polarising, where people have really strong feelings and uh, opinions on. Uh, I think it's a really hard call, but I, I do think they're in a really difficult position. Um, I think for them to just voted um, in favour without saying our conditions haven't been met and we aren't happy about that would have been quite difficult. Um, Patrick Maguire. Um, the option of voting it down was really an option for Sorry, Miata, we, we slightly lost you there. Um, Patrick Maguire, let's bring you in. You, you speak to a lot of, uh, lot of Labour MPs from across the board. How do they think Keir Starmer's doing right now? Well, I... Keir Starmer's biggest selling point, as in the country, among Labour MPs, is the fact he's not Jeremy Corbyn. So as whereas Jeremy Corbyn was a unifying figure in the PLP and the Parliamentary Labour Party in that most MPs hated him, most MPs are simply, even now, satisfied with Keir Starmer uh, as 
as an alternative in the most basic sense. But I think there is a degree of irritation, as there was with Jeremy Corbyn, actually, that Keir Starmer operates with quite a tight circle around him. There isn't necessarily a sense of a collaborative relationship between MPs and the leader's office, which can be overdone. I mean, you know, you see um, the dangers of involving MPs in every decision you make uh, in, in the amount of discontent on the Tory side, right? You have to listen to some absolute loons and you don't actually want them to have any meaningful influence on your policy. But that same structural problem with the leader of the Labour Party, um, a very tight sort of command and control circle around him. One shadow minister described it very well. Keir Starmer, as a former barrister, wants every MP to be his paralegal. He wants to say, listen, uh, can you go and do this for me now? And then I expect you back here in, in four years' time uh, and then that's what we'll be doing. I think... There is irritation setting in, particularly when there are avoidable errors such as this. That are that there's a feeling that this is all cooked up inside an office uh, with a little understanding of, of of what MPs want or need. You know, it's all slightly too clever by half. And I think this abstention definitely fits in that in that category. Yeah, John's just texted in saying, surely if Labour disapprove, they should announce their intention to vote against. The government then pull the vote and amend the proposal. There's no way they'd go ahead, lose the vote and allow all restrictions to lapse. Labour are simply cowardly and unprincipled. And <coughs> Richard gets in touch and says, I'd love to tell you what I think Keir Starmer is doing, but I've decided to abstain. Um... <laughs> well, that, 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 that's the fundamental problem, isn't it? Because, you know, Labour can say, and Labour can brief to journalists as they were last night, oh, look, this keeps the focus on Tory divisions. That's absolute nonsense. At the top of the bulletin uh, on Times Radio this evening on, on, on the music radio stations, that it will say 100 Tory MPs voted against the government, but Labour abstained, so the tears are passing anyway. It's just nonsense. Uh, John, let's uh, remind ourselves of one of the main attack lines of uh, the Conservatives and Boris Johnson, and then we'll discuss whether or not it's, uh, it's very effective. And it's entirely uh, typical, I may say, of, uh, of, of Captain Hindsight, that he now attacks our efforts to, to procure PD, uh, says we, we went too fast, uh, when uh, he now says that uh, we, we uh, says then that we were not going fast enough, and now says uh, that we went too fast. He should make his mind up. He talks about hindsight. I say catch up. I called for a circuit breaker. The Prime Minister stood there and said it'd be a disaster. He wasn't going to do it. Then he caught up and did exactly that just a few weeks uh, so is he Captain Foresight, Captain Hindsight? Um, does this work, John, as an attack against Keir Starmer? Yes, but it's a defensive attack. Um, and I think it came from focus groups who felt that, uh, that the government deserved the benefit of the doubt in, in handling the, the, the crisis and that uh, the Labour opposition was being opportunistic. But as Keir Starmer pointed out in that clip, he did call for a circuit breaker um, I can't remember exactly how long it was, two and a half weeks, I think, before the government actually did it. And that really ought to put the Captain Hindsight uh, story to bed. I mean, I think Keir Starmer, although he's you know, obviously in a different register from, from Tony Blair, he is, he is doing extremely well. And uh, I thought his comeback on, uh, on the Prime Minister the other day when, uh, when he asked him about what Boris Johnson was doing about Priti Patel and uh, the Prime Minister came back and said, well, what are you doing about Jeremy Corbyn? And, uh, you know, Keir, Keir Starmer was able to say, well, I'm sorting out my party and uh, you're not sorting out yours. Uh, echoes, of, echoes of Blair there, I thought.
Yeah, I, you, yeah, I leave my party. You, you follow yours. But as, as you've mentioned, Jeremy Corbyn, we probably do need to discuss uh, the question of anti-Semitism. Let's just take a listen to what uh, Keir Starmer said in his party conference speech. I promised on my first day as leader that we will root out anti-Semitism by its roots. We're making progress, and we will root it out once and for all. We're becoming a competent, credible opposition. Patrick Maguire, how has, is he doing dealing with uh, Jeremy Corbyn? Has that issue gone away or is it going to uh, blow up in his face again? Away. If you, if you t- take Keir Starmer's own, uh, his, the very first promise he made in his acceptance speech was, I want Jewish members to feel comfortable in the Labour Party again. Look, he spoke for almost an entire day at the Jewish Labour Movement's conference uh, last weekend. And Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think, would have been welcome in the room. So by that definition, it's moving in the right direction. But, uh, and he's he's got loads of praise from uh, commentators on the centre and the right for his supposedly decisive action about Jeremy Cor- against Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, you know, the comparisons to Neil Kinnock, this is clause four moment, this is militant moment. That's all very well and good. But what's likelier is that this row with the left of the party is going to go on for ages and ages and ages, regardless of whether Jeremy Corbyn is admitted to the whip again, which I think he will be. Um, then the story is of Labour divisions. And then bear in mind, Labour don't have a policy on tax yet. Labour don't have an economic policy yet. When they come to flesh that out later, and this has always been a problem for leaders with an extremist flank, uh, be that Neil Kinnock or be that Jeremy Thorpe, who had loads of rounds with the liberal youth movement in the 70s and 60s. Um, you have a big extreme uh, being oxygenated, making loads of out- outlandish proposals. So really, Jeremy Corbyn is merely a symptom of a bigger problem, which is Keir Starmer pledged to unify his party with the left, whose ideas are going to be f- much, much further away from what he wants to he wants to say, especially on tax. And that's what did for Neil Kinnock, even though he was hailed as the hammer of the left too. Yeah, and the piece I've written for Redbox this morning, I basically posed the question, is he Neil Kinnock cleaning up after, you know, the, a disastrous election by the, the by the hard left? Or is he David Cameron, you know, uh, uh, taking the party uh, back into power? Albeit, as it turned out, with the help of the Lib Dems, which I suspect is probably Keir Starmer's best chances. Uh, just before I let you all go, I want to come around to all and ask what would be, if Keir Starmer picked up the phone to you and said, what, what should I do next? What should, be, what should be my New Year's resolution? What would you uh, suggest? Miata Fambula, let's start with you. Uh, I think he has got to uh, set clear direction. I think there's been a pivot in um, the last about six weeks after they sort of talked about the circuit break. They've started talking about alternative policies to the ones the government's putting forward. And I think that's working for them because it gives them definition. Um, and they've already he's already shown that he's a competent leader. We now need to know what he's about. And so he needs to be saying more so that the country can see what the Conservatives are about and what Labour is about. And if we can do that, I think he's uh, on course uh, for a winning strategy. Patrick McGuire? Uh, yeah, I would agree. Start talking about policy and maybe thinking about maybe think about swapping Annalise Dodds and Lisa Nandy uh, from uh, Shadow, Shadow Front Secretary, Shadow Chancellor. Uh, top tip there. And finally, John Wentzel. Um, well, I disagree with uh, with Patrick. I think uh, I, I think Keir Starmer doesn't need my advice on this, but I don't think he'll let uh, Jeremy Corbyn back into the parliamentary party, and I think that will be the right thing to do. And I don't think the left will be uh, a huge problem for him because they don't have any power. But my main advice to him would be to abstain when it comes to the uh, EU trade deal um, vote, because that, I think, is when an abstention would be absolutely justified, unlike tonight. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 